<laughs> okay, let me just uh, prepare the lady petrol for these fine ladies. Yay! And please, if you could put your phones onto airplane mode. Yeah. Steve, had you ever heard of lady petrol before this exact moment? Um, Stephen, he's asking you if you had ever heard about lady petrol before. No, I was no, introduced he, to the concept tonight. He was just, he was only recently introduced to the concept. He's been on a journey. Richie, what kind of lady petrol are you drinking? Just, just regular beer. Just regular podcast oh. juice. Kira, are you being irresponsible with us as well? I had a glass of wine beforehand. Yep. If that makes sense. That counts. That, that, counts. Counts. Yeah, that's, that certainly counts. <laughs> so, Richie, have you thought of a cold open? Have I thought? Of, uh, we're in the middle of it right now. I thought the whole lady petrol bit was pretty good. We <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that'll do. Okay, um, Teresa, whacked up on Lady Petrol, can you please introduce yourself? Hello, my name is Teresa Newman. I was a journalist briefly, but now I work as a parliamentary assistant and political advisor in Leinster House, uh, which is just a massive political nerd for for, for reference, if you, if you ever wanted to. And you're wearing a badge that says... I'm wearing a badge that says tall, so I support a yes vote in the forthcoming referendum on the Eighth Amendment. And I have been, I'd say, looking forward to this day on Friday might be a desperate way to say it, but I have been hoping for an opportunity to vote on this issue for many years now. So um, that's what that's what I'm here for. And Ellen? Uh, I am a, my name's Ellen Coyne. I'm a senior reporter with the Ireland edition of The Times and I focus on politics and uh, women's rights issues in particular. The paper does have a position in favour of repeal, but uh, that does not mean that our coverage so far has been biased in any way or unfair to either side. Um, so yeah, that's it. I, I'm wearing no badges of any political affiliation of any sort whatsoever. Are you wearing an any non-political badges? I'm actually wearing no badges whatsoever. I'm not taking any risks in <laughs> <laughs> She's wearing entirely neutral flowers on her uh, dress choice. But are today. they neutral though? Oh are God. they? Mm. Let's They're get into feminine. this. Let's really get the flower into of this. the womb? I don't know. I was to say. <laughs> I would get the impression that you're very pro woman from that blouse. Just saying. Well, it's also got manly stripes, which oh, are. It does have yeah. manly stripes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I can't see this dress, but it sounds like a hell of a dress. Kira, <laughs> <laughs> what manly stripes are you wearing? I'm wearing my repeal jumper and I'm recording in my hot press. <laughs> <laughs> and for a broader background. <laughs> Just for a visual there for anybody. <laughs> is it a nice hot press at least? Or is it kind of a it, Harry you know Potter what? situation? It's a lovely hot press. Okay, good. It's, it's, I'm covered in duvets. I'm very cosy. <laughs> so yeah, I'm, I'm Kira O'Connor-Walsh, um, producer of the 8th podcast on the Headstuff Podcast Network. Okay, fantastic. That is, uh, do I do I need to say anything nah, else about enough. how pro repeal I am? <laughs> <laughs> I'm also a former fetus, <laughs> <laughs> so I know a lot about this issue. And needless to say, myself and Richie are of the What Am Politics podcast, who have for a very long time been asking for people to vote um, yes in this referendum that's coming up. Um, mm-hmm. So this is in no way going to be a bipartisan, balanced show, but we are going to try our best to. Look at it um, a little bit. Oh, thanks for the leaflet, um, Teresa. She's, it's not a leaflet, Stephen. It's, it's, it's a, a newspaper. newspaper. It's, it's a twelve-page newspaper. Not my newspaper. Not, no. <laughs> and though some people would Ellen's not show paper it. has a lot more pages than twelve, which she fills most of the pages in her paper every day. Speaking of which, so we'll start off by trying to look at it as like a general political view of the campaign. So, Ellen, could you please 
give us an overview of how the campaign has kind of gone so far politically. Sure. I mean, uh, politically, this has probably been, uh, regardless of your point of view, probably the most standout political moment on any social issue in the history of the state. And just for context, it's worth saying that I think roughly about this time last year, the idea of um, having an abortion law in Ireland that allowed free access up to any time period, 12 weeks or anything like that, was a political impossibility. Um, And basically in the last year you've had this um, watershed moment where you've had Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, the leader of of both those parties, openly not only support the repeal of the Eighth Amendment, but also uh, what other people would have described as a so-called abortion on demand law, something that was seen as a spectre for a long time where you had the two main parties trying to support this idea of a non-controversial abortion law where you could just have access in cases like rape, incest and fatal fetal abnormalities only because they played well. Um, To give the credit to Enda Kenny, because of the Citizens' Assembly, the country has come forward leaps and bounds in its view of a pro-choice law thanks to the Citizens' Assembly, the uh, Oireachtas Committee on the Eighth Amendment, which I think took all the heat out of the issue for the first time ever considered it an evidence-based approach. You then had Micheál Martin uh, just around Christmas time coming out in favour of the committee's findings. Um, Leo Varadkar did as well. And actually at the moment in Ireland, you don't have a single major political party that isn't in favour of repealing the Eighth Amendment. Um, So that's the position that we find ourselves in now. Uh, leading up to a vote on Friday, which will give people the opportunity to repeal our our constitutional ban on abortion for the first time in 36 years. Okay, good summary. <laughs> yeah, it was really succinct. <laughs> it's almost like you're a journalist. <laughs> Theresa, speaking, go, moving over to then the yes side, what has been the main approaches that the yes campaign have been taking to try and convince people? Well, I think that the Together for Yes grouping has tried to pull together a few of the major groups that have campaigned on this, this issue for a long time. So Together for Yes has three main components. It has the National Women's Council, it has the abortion rights campaign and has the coalition to repeal the eighth, which is a, a it's a massive coalition group. I think there's over eighty regional groups um, affiliated with the coalition. So, trying to draw all of those elements together to form a kind of coherent, cohesive group, um, they've done a very good job, I think, together for yes, in trying to do that. I think we saw a similar thing in the marriage equality, uh, whereby groups that may have um, argued with each other internally over the years, just put their differences aside to try and enact and try and bring about big social change. So that's the Together for Yes grouping. I um, work with and assist them as much as I can, but I work for um, a very, very pro-choice TD who is within Fine Gael. So um, within, I suppose, the political appetite for Yes, which Ellen has very succinctly described, um, there are differences of opinion within the major political parties. But um, I suppose it has been interesting to see those kind of shift and change over the last few months. And um, certainly the Oireachtas Committee has challenged an awful lot of people within political parties who may have came to that committee thinking they were of one mind and learned so much and really were presented with such strong evidence. They, They weren't really left with ironically, much choice, but to support um, the committee findings, which were, um, they were actually more conservative than the than the Citizens' Assembly findings in many ways, um, but I think reflected what the majority of the Irish people were um, probably ready for, I think, at this point in the conversation. And what kind of like practical things have you guys been doing to try and actually get the vote out? So, um 
we realised, I think back in September, October, that there wasn't going to be, well, we didn't think at that stage that Michal Martin would come out for yes. We weren't even particularly sure if, if Leo Varadkar would come out for yes. Like I'm talking back um, seven seven or eight months ago. And, Seems um, like a lifetime ago. It, it, it is if you're a fetus. Um, <laughs> so, but, um, sorry. It's the Lady Petrol. <laughs> anyway, um, so back then, um, we decided that something had to be done um, to try and draw together elements of the major political pack, uh, parties. Yeah, so about eight months ago, we, um, in Chatham House Rules, formed a group, um, which at the time had no name. And um, it was attended by a number of people from the medical and legal and academic and political spheres. Um, some of them former TDs and senators, um, some of them university lecturers, all of them with an interest in changing this law and trying to bring together, in kind of in conjunction with the Together for Yes group. We didn't know at that time that Together for Yes were going to form. We knew there was kind of talks about a group forming. So practical things to get to the point of what we, what, what we did is we got involved in that group. We were invited to join. And I say we, I mean my sister Kate and myself. And... Um, there was a number of other people around that table and together we worked to try and um, the committee was still sitting at the time so to try and reach across party lines to try and facilitate and support each other and support each other in conversations with maybe our party colleagues or people who may have been leaning towards yes or leaning towards change but unsure of really how to do that. So we, we've done that. So um, as well as that practical way we have produced a newspaper, a 12-page newspaper, which I have handed out to the, to the group who are here today. Um, we printed 120,000 copies of that and last Friday we printed another 30,000 because we managed to distribute all of the 120,000 in the last three weeks. I believe all of which went to the distribution um, centre of your front sitting room. Uh, well, I, I've got an open plan downstairs. So <laughs> it's not so my open anymore. House, basically, yes. So it's a cottage in Portobello, which is now almost 40% full of newspapers, um, much to the delight of my partner. Um, so he is um, very, very tidy. So he's pretty stressed out by the amount of newspapers. <laughs> but it, it'll be fine because people are turning up in their droves to collect them. So we've produced a paper. We've been canvassing. We've been doing a lot of things. And we've travelled all around the country from Bally Buffet in Donegal, where I don't know, you're not from Bally Buffet. You're from further north even, are you? South. Or, south. South. Yeah, well, from Donegal to Cork to Clare to Limerick, Kildare, Louth, Meath, Longford, Westmeath. We've travelled everywhere trying to communicate with communities and, and groups that perhaps mightn't be thought to be supporting of yes. And you found the response pretty good? Yeah, um, I have to say the most conservative group we spoke to was last Monday night in Abbey Shrule in Longford and that was a Fine Gael AGM and they weren't too happy to, to, to have us down talking about the 8th but I, I said, look, you know, we're going to come down and do this and we got the permission of the party chair. We didn't just land down. And I'd say even in that room, I'd say there was close to 40% of the people in the room in support of a yes, which was I found remarkable and the age profile was fairly old, so I don't think it's fair actually to judge people along age age lines on this issue. Uh, what's uh, I, I, this is the reason? Then anyone else wants to answer as well. Like, what has your guys' favourite moment in campaigning been? Like, have you had any really like 
heartwarming or really positive things that are going to stick with you from this campaign? Uh, well, obviously, I I haven't been campaigning, but I suppose my favourite moment uh, is probably not going to be as uh, sincere or profound as Teresa's. It was just uh, probably last over the last few months when Peter Boylan started to emerge as a very strong voice for repeal during the committees. And just to remember, like uh, Dr. Boylan, by his own admission, would say that in the past he would have actually been more on the pro-life spectrum. And Dr. Boylan is? Uh, Peter Boylan, head of uh, the Institute of Obstetrics and Gynecology. And his testimony was also relevant because he was an ex- expert witness at the inquest into the death of Savita Halepanavar. He's now been, I suppose, one of the strongest advocates in the Together for Yes side. But um, there was a moment in time a few months ago where there was a deep anxiety among some of the female uh, pro-choice politicians because Peter Boylan had actually delivered a lot of their babies and they were just worried that while they were standing on panels with this man, could he remember what their bits looked like? I suppose that's just something that's a very that real uh, fear. whether it's a yes or a oh, no vote her. that is going to stay with me for a long, long time. And I mean, obviously, as a, a person with the wrong kind of genitalia, I can't really comment. But also, not just what your bits look like, but not what your bits look like, not in their best position. Oh, I would say they're probably their absolute worst. I mean, <laughs> if you're going to pick a day where you were going to show it to the most eminent man in the country, I definitely wouldn't pick the day when I'm. In labour, but I suppose aside from that, like um, Did you pick to a be, day? Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let me get my clue up. <laughs> but uh, to be completely sincere, I mean, whether you are a yes or a no voter, the covering the citizens' assembly. I thought was one of those times where you're writing a paragraph in a news story and you actually can't believe what you've just written. And the same thing happened the day that Micheál Martin stood up in the doll and gave that speech, which was basically, if you take the politics out of it, a clinical takedown of the Eighth Amendment. And whether you are pro-choice or pro-life or you're a journalist or you're a campaigner, that is an incredible moment, particularly when you consider that Fianna Fáil has always identified itself proudly as being the architects of the Eighth Amendment. Like that is a huge, that is the, that's your reeling in the years moment, basically, as a journalist. And just even to be a reporter working in Leinster House at the moment, it's a huge honour to get to cover this referendum, no matter what the result is, because up until now, it's already been extraordinary. So Kira, um, the very first episode of your of your podcast series, the eighth, you made the decision to actually go out and seek people with the opposite opinion of yours. You actually wanted to go out and find the people who who are campaigning for a no vote, and actually just listened to it again this morning just to get a refresh. And you did, I must say, manage to find the most succinct, intelligent, articulate people out there. And you you mentioned that it it actually profoundly moved you and and even your husband as well. So, like, what were your main takeaways from from talking with this side of the campaign? Well, um, well, I suppose when I started the podcast, I knew we were facing into a seriously long stint. Um, I started it just in December um, of last year. Um, I knew we were facing into a long stint of a battleground. And, you know, I would have had, uh, I've been pro-choice all my life as far as back as I can remember. Um, and I had an abortion myself and uh, I've been campaigning and I worked with the Irish Family Planning Association and I've worked with uh, Choice Ireland and just over years and years because I'm an old lady now. Um, so I've been working on this for a long time and I knew how fraught it was going to get. And I thought, God, you know, I really can't face into a battleground like this over months and months and months. And I really wanted to believe that out there, there was a no middle ground. The way there are yes middle ground, there are people who are kind of just about yes. Um, and then there are really staunch repealers like me and uh, and some of the other people that you're talking to there. Um, so who are really in favour of yes. So I figured, 
right, I'm going to go out and find some of these kind of middle ground people. Um, and, you know, I spoke to a couple of them and they were amazing. Um, and But at the same time, uh, I haven't been able to replicate those conversations. Um, and that's something that's been kind of disappointing for me because I set out to try and give voice to the no side um, you know, in good faith and, and to try and find people who were that middle ground. And, and what I found was there were the, the, the kind of very extreme people on the campaign who I, I really didn't want to speak to, to be honest, because the whole idea of this podcast was not to have a debate. It was to kind of hear people's opinions. And I thought if their opinions were just ridiculous or too extreme or, you know, damaging to women, then I didn't really want to do a head to head with them. Um, but kind of people coming in good faith with a genuine no opinion I wanted to talk to. And I, I found a couple of people like that. And then I also found a whole rake of other people that were uh, that I didn't use in the podcast because I felt they just weren't right. They weren't li- like they were just coming from a very extreme position. And then any of the other middle ground no people I found didn't want to talk. And and honestly, I think that a lot of them are just very private about it. Uh, and I think some of them are slightly ashamed of their opinion, to be perfectly honest. Oh, wow. Yeah, well, we um, we, we first approached the topic back in November when we spoke to Tara Flynn. And one of her um, caveats when she was talking about coming on is that she didn't want to come on with someone from the no campaign. Because if you just have two people from opposing sides, all you get is the gladiatorial this and that and the other so I thought when, what you did manage to pull off in, in the first episode of The Eighth was that you got to hear that side of the argument in, in as much of, in as much of like, I don't know, an articulate sense as you can, while also kind of basically the thing that we have to disagree on is that they believe that life begins at conception. And exactly. if you want to, if you want to repeal the Eighth Amendment, you, you don't believe that. So that's just the, that's just the foundational difference. Well, some people do believe that life begins at conception, but they don't actually believe that that life trumps the life of a woman. Yes. So there are a lot of people who are voting yes who believe that life begins at conception as well. Okay, and, that's a good point. I mean, technically and scientifically and medically, life does begin at conception. Mm. Yeah, a fetus um, is alive um, in the sense that it's cells reproducing. Yeah, yeah, I mean, technically we were all alive from conception. As a former fetus, I can say this. <laughs> <laughs> I've got such a good memory. <laughs> but no, but like, I mean, technically, medically, scientifically, life does begin at conception. But I think the capacity for living begins at viability. And that is the, that is the succinct difference. That is that is the distinct difference mm. between the two arguments. And then exactly like you were saying there, that you know, <sighs> equating a, a, a newly fertilized, you know, blastocyst or zygote with a living, breathing, walking around woman who is probably the woman in front of you in McDonald's at night, or you know, the woman driving your taxi. Or Are these the thoughts that come across at three o'clock in the morning when you're queuing? It, they do sometimes. Yeah. Depends how much Lady Petrol's on board, to be honest. <laughs> I think that like, I've actually said this Teresa, to Teresa before. Like, I would be probably closer on the spectrum to pro-life in the sense of that like profound, like almost esoteric argument about where life begins. Like, I was raised very, very Catholic and my family would be very religious. And like, speaking obviously in a personal capacity, not as a reporter, like, like I believe that life begins at conception probably more towards the pro-life argument than the scientific one that, that Teresa outlined. Um, and I suppose the point that you were making there about people being um, ashamed of their vote, I think the one thing that has emerged so far in this debate for me is... Uh, again, personally speaking, I don't think that you can, if somebody has that profound belief that that is a human life and they think that abortion is um, a, a, a profound moral sin, 
that's a very difficult argument and it's not one that's exclusive to Ireland. But this referendum is not about that. It's about whether or not the Eighth Amendment belongs in the Constitution. And I think that you've seen the lack of a defence for the Eighth Amendment in the No campaign because they want to make the debate about whether or not abortion is right or wrong. And I think it would be grotesque for any country to hold a vote on whether or not people believe that abortion is right or wrong. And that's not really what we're doing here. I think that it's more an argument about whether or not this legislation has worked. And purely from a journalistic point of view, one of the main things that you're supposed to do is highlight legislation that doesn't work. And I think that that's what a lot of the media who've been accused of being aggressively pro-choice or aggressively pro-repeal have been doing for way longer than I've ever been a reporter. So you actually lead us on to a good question now, is that the referendum that we're going to have is only about deleting and replacing the Eighth Amendment with something else that basically allowed the doll to, to create its own legislation about the regulation of abortion in Ireland. But we have been given the heads of legislation as to what the government thinks should be brought in, which includes the essentially no restriction up until 12 weeks with a cup with 72 hours wait time mm-hmm. um, through your GP. And then other, other um, um, what's the word? Um, exceptional cases. Exceptional cases up until I think six months and then, and then other things after that as well. Basically, um, th- this is, but this is only proposed legislation. So essentially, we're not guaranteed. We're not going to get. We're not guaranteed to get this twelve-week legislation coming in. Do you think that the doll is actually going to be able to pass that legislation after the referendum, or do you think other political things could happen in the meantime? There, there is a question over whether or not the doll will be able to pass it, and this is something that Leo Radker has said himself. Simon Harris has said himself. It's a minority doll, and they don't have the support of. Um, they don't have a majority for any vote, never mind that one that would be as controversial as this. But I think the thing that's worth uh, pointing out is that people like Teresa and myself, who spent hours and hours of our 20s that we will never, ever get back watching the Dole debates um, over the past few months, uh, would have seen that there were a lot of TDs who would have identified themselves as this uh, this middle ground, this elusive middle ground, who agree with abortion in case of rape, incest and fatal fetal abnormality, but felt that the 12-week law was a bit too far for them. But not a single one of those politicians has been able to propose an alternative law to the 12-week one. And that's the reason that the 12-week law exists. It's not like Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, with all due respect to people like Trees like Theresa in those parties had like a profound feminist awakening overnight. This legislation came from pragmatism rather than feminism because we couldn't have that super popular abortion law that would allow for cases like rape, incest and fatal fetal abnormalities only because it was found to not really be humane to expect a rape victim to prove it. So that's where the 12-week law came from. So yes, there will be questions um, over whether or not the government can secure enough votes to get this through. There will be unbelievable lobbying on uh, TDs who aren't fully in support of it if there is a yes vote. But it is up to those parties, particularly if there's an election in the meantime, to outline exactly what alternative they would have to the 12-week law. We've passed the point now in Ireland where you can you can get away with stepping away from a microphone and saying it's too sensitive, I haven't really thought it through. Like we're in the, we're in the middle of it now. So if you are not in favour of the 12-week proposal, it would be very difficult for any serious politician or political party to not support it without outlining an alternative. Yeah, I mean, to follow on from what Ellen said there, it, it, it absolutely was not a feminist awakening. It was It was more, I suppose, a grappling with the fact that if we were to provide abortion in the most limited circumstances, which is what they were all hoping to do, they didn't want to legislate at all, ideally, but they were left with, again, ironically, no choice. <laughs> so, um, 
I think the most compelling evidence the committee found, I was only thinking back on this in the last few days, um, a Fine Gael TD from Galway, uh, Hildegard Nocton, quite conservative, um, a, a lovely woman, very, very sound, a young woman, um, but coming from the very conservative perspective on this, what entered the committee, um, I don't want to prejudge her views, but from, I think, a conservative perspective would be Absolutely, fair to say. Yeah. And she actually uttered the words game changer when abortion pills entered um, the, the, the debate and en- entered the discussion on the committee. And I think the abortion pills, as well as the hard cases of rape, incest and fatal fetal abnormality, they crafted the 12 weeks proposal significantly because abortion pills are safe to take in the first 14 weeks of pregnancy. Um, they are safe to take under clinical guidance up to 14 weeks. They're actually safe to take up to 10 weeks gestation outside of a clinical setting in the home, which is why a lot of people, and well, they haven't had much choice in Ireland, but to order them online and take them up to 10 weeks. And the fact that the illegal medicines were being purchased and were taken, taken so often, uh, it's estimated that five women a day get them and three women a day take them, which again in itself shows you how not everyone who gets them takes them. They, they still change their minds or they still might choose not to end their pregnancy with abortion pills. So that, that's a reality in Ireland. You've got three women a day taking abortion pills that are unregulated. You're unsure of their contents, their ingredients or their effects upon you. And the other thing is, I mean, I have travelled with friends for abortions to the UK and the fanciest, the Rolls Royce Porsche of pregnancy tests, when you pee on it, it tells you the clear blue digital in weeks, in words one, it tells you no matter how pregnant you are, even if you're 14 weeks, the most it'll tell you is six plus weeks. So if you don't read the instructions, you could be forgiven for thinking, I'm only six weeks pregnant. And that leads to a whole host of complications. If you are going online and buying medicine that tells and you say when you and you honestly fill out that form online that says how pregnant are you? And you say, oh, I'm six to eight weeks you could be 14 weeks, you know, you could be 15, 16, 17. And this is the problem. And I think the evidence that the committee heard that our, our maternity hospitals currently, um, the, the doctors from maternity hospitals came before the committee and they said women are presenting in our A&Es with partial abortions, ruptured uteruses, abortions that have not, or, or abortion pills that have not worked to the point of a complete delivery so that they've got decaying placental tissue. They may have deep infection, massive blood loss. Um, some of them have ended up with such horrific complications that they've lost the ability to reproduce ever again. And, and these are really barbaric and upsetting things to consider. And this is what's happening right now in Ireland, in, in our Irish maternity hospitals. And they're terrified turning up, terrified, because they know that they could face 14 years. And the doctors at the committee said, these are ha- this is happening. We deal with it and we feel so guilty because no matter what we say to the patient, like we're not going to say anything, we still can't get an accurate patient history from them. We still can't get them to say what they took, when they took it, when, you know, how long pregnant they thought they were or whatever. They can't get the truth out of them because the, the, they're so afraid. And, and that, I think, contributed vastly to the 12 weeks thing because the safety of the of the abortion pill can be guaranteed 
up to 14 weeks once it's taken under medical supervision. Beyond that, um, and not taken under medical supervision, anything can happen. Really catastrophic consequences for women. No, but it's actually, you know, just jumping in there that, you know, the 12 weeks thing for me, having conversations with people and canvassing and so on, the 12 weeks thing has been such a sticking point with people. And tr- and I think that that's something that, you know, has been the hardest thing to communicate. Because if you haven't been sitting in the Citizens' Assembly and hearing those testimonies, it's incredibly hard for people to understand where that 12 weeks comes from. It just seems like an awful long time. And, you know, that's down to how we date pregnancies and everything. You know, and there's so many other issues at play, like a lot of women don't have regular periods and don't know when they might have gotten pregnant. Uh, so they have no basic by which to date their pregnancies. And as you describe, that's another way that people could be taking the abortion pill thinking they might have gotten pregnant at a specific date, but because they have irregular cycles, uh, they weren't able to actually date it properly themselves. And if they were doing that under medical supervision, they would have had proper dating and proper scans and everything and they would do it properly. So, yeah, that's just to say that the 12-week thing is, is utterly justifiable and necessary Uh, But it's been a very hard task to communicate that to the wider public. So shifting topics a little bit, recently Facebook announced that they wouldn't be accepting adverts relating to the referendum that came from outside of Ireland. And then almost immediately afterwards, Google stepped in and said that they would would be putting a complete moratorium on adverts relating to the referendum in its entirety. Do you think that this kind of intervention by tech companies is going to have a significant effect on the overall results? Oh, it's very hard to say now. Obviously, this is something that we can look back on in a, in a few weeks or months' time and 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 really examine and say, was that a game changer? Um, yeah, I do think on balance it has been significant. It has been significant to the point that it caused um, the spokesman for Save the Eighth, uh, John McGurk, to lose his tiny mind over it. And he... Um, and, and any day that he is he is really annoyed is, I think, a good day. Um, <laughs> In fairness, so, to him, it takes a lot. It takes a lot to make him visibly annoyed. He, he usually seems to hold his cool to a certain extent. Well, I just look. I can't get past the time he went on the Tonight Show um, with my sister and um, yes. tried. Like he did, he he went very hard after that I night. Remember, I remember texting you. It did you, go badly for him. I think in the I, end. I don't. I didn't watch that show because I have other things to do at eleven o'clock on a weekday night. But my dad told me he's like, "Oh, I seen your buddy Kate O'Connell there ripping the skin off this uh, this repeal this anti repeal guy." And I was like, ah, yeah, I'll tell Teresa about that. She, she did, you know, she, he, he had decided, I think, to try and assassinate her from every, from every angle. So uh, I don't think that worked out so well for him. But anyway, to go back to your original question, the, um, will it have an effect? Yes, I think so. However, I am part of a group online that reports and flags ads. And I have to say there's only been an increase that I have noticed um, of people flagging and reporting ads. As in somebody earlier most posted to the group, this is the third one I've seen in 15 minutes. This that's, is a that's new... That's Google and YouTube, which are supposed to have banned all of them. Absolutely. So I don't know if the ban has been as effective as had been hoped or if they're getting around it. How are they doing it? And why hasn't it stopped? And we're four days out from a vote. But anyway, Ellen's probably better at answering that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say better. Um, I mean, yeah, we did. Um, the Ireland edition of The Times has been monitoring these adverts since February because we could clearly see that this was going to happen. And there was two kinds of ads. Um, and it's just mentioning worth mentioning that the ads that we caught were just the ones that were brought to our attention. And they were very much probably just the tip of the iceberg. So you had the ads from like the SIPO registered groups like Save the Eighth and Love Both uh, Family and Life. that SIPO were coming. being the... 
I mean, they're both, they're all the same, but it's the oh, standards in public office, yeah, which is the, yeah. the official. Oh, sorry, yes, the yes. Official, so these yeah. are all like the officially registered, um, I suppose, above above board campaigning groups. Um, that's one section of ads. The other section are so-called dark ads, where it's coming up from groups that are not registered with SIPO. So nobody knows where the funding is coming from, which group is paying for them. These were the ones that were making the really... Uh, questionable to extremely inaccurate to downright insensitive to inflammatory to um, disrespectful claims, images, pictures uh, that couldn't be linked back to any group. Some of them were actually linked to foreign funding. And these were the ads that really freaked out Facebook and uh, Google. Remember, this is just in the wake of the Cambridge Analytica scandal. And all of these uh, multinationals are hypersensitive about what they call electoral integrity, which basically means hijacking an app to get an election result that you want. So it is hard to say, because this is so new to Ireland, what effect these ads have on people, because they're way too recent for us to have any way of actually measuring the influence that social media ads have on voters compared to traditional media like radio or even billboards, posters or just door to door canvassing. But I think the thing that stands out from this is that no multinational wants to be doing this retrospectively anymore. The reason that this happened so quickly, uh, some people would say it was way too late, but it just happened when it was kind of brought to Facebook's attention, basically when it started getting so much bad press for it. um, They shut them down straight away because they don't want to be in a position next month where somebody is standing up in the doll and saying that the reason we got the referendum result that we did is because people were misinformed or misled using Facebook again. Um, It's an interesting experience as a reporter to constantly be putting things to political parties or governments, to put things to organisations that are so shallow and media obsessed that this idea of, like bad press is so powerful when you're dealing with Facebook and Google. And I think that that is why this was shut down so quickly. But like Teresa said, Nobody can regulate the internet. Writing these stories sometimes was like whack-a-mole. You'd bring something to Facebook's attention, they would shut it down. The next day, the same person with the same email would have a new page with loads of money backing a similar advert. There's ads out there that we don't know about and won't ever know about making claims that could be completely inaccurate and some of those will be winning votes. But it's just impossible to measure and Ireland is so behind on data regulation that it's, I mean, this is a a totally pointless conversation to be having a few days before a vote. This is for the next referendum, the next election, the next European election. Uh, oh, well, I think that so. this will... We've worked really hard on these questions. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just think that like this is going to be, unfortunately for people like Theresa who are so invested in this campaign, the Eighth Amendment referendum might actually just end up being a learning episode in terms of how we regulate social media rather than um, an example of us getting it right. You have obviously clearly touched Teresa's nerves because she has reached for the lady petrol and poured it. That's one bottle down. <laughs> one bottle down. I apologise. I apologise. We're here for what, half an hour. Kira, um, I'm going to throw a very easy question at you now. I um, hope you're ready for it. So what's going to happen? What's going to happen if the no side win? <laughs> well, God, I mean, apart from the fact that I think uh, the group Manana here in Igtashtala, I don't know if anybody there mm-hmm. is a member of it, are going to set the entire city of Dublin on fire. <laughs> um, apart from that, um, look, I think the main thing that's going to happen if the no side um, win and if the eighth is not repealed 
is there's going to be an awful lot of hurt out there because, you know, whatever politically, but like there are women who have bared their souls and talked about their experiences online and talked about their experiences in the media and shared details of their lives that they really didn't need, want to or have to. Um, but they did it in to be able to put a face on, you know, the abortion regime in Ireland as it is, as it stands, which is exporting um, people to the UK and illegal abortions uh, by importing pills. And I think people had to tell those stories because, you know, I think the, the idea of silence, it, it's a very powerful political tool, silence. You know, when, when, when women are too ashamed to talk about their abortions, it's very easy to sweep it under the carpet. Um, and now that all these women have come out and told their stories, I'm really not sure what's going to happen to all that stuff, you know, and all that hurt and all that, you know, that's just been exposed and then is just left there with no kind of conclusion. Does that make sense? It's just, yeah, of course, that's, yeah. that's my main worry is for the women who've been affected by the 8th, uh, how they're going to feel in this country after after a no vote is just unthinkable at this stage for me anyway. Yeah, it's a small island. We all got to share it together. I often think about that myself. Like when the f- this is all done, like what's going to be the lasting impact on people? Yeah, I mean, I, I'd, I'd echo what Kira says there, but also to play, to play devil's avocado here, um, that... I think it's going to be quite tight. Um, I think it's going to be exceptionally tight. Maybe not divorce referendum tight, but my cynical negative brain is saying 52, 53% yes and hoping very much for that. But I think if and once and if that happens, um, there's still one in every two people that you get in a bus with probably, you know, had voted a different way from you and it's going to split the country in half and in a kind of, you know, philosophical way, the way I see Ireland grappling with this issue is is almost like how I would imagine somebody, a, a, a body in labour. Like it, it, Ireland is convulsing and it is trying to expel this 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 amendment from the womb of Ireland and it is it is it is torturous and it is long and it is bloody and it is painful and it is not showing itself in its best day. And you know, you can see that with the different campaigning groups. And I'm not saying there's angels on either side, to be honest with you, you know, but... Apart from those in the room. Uh, look, I'm the only <laughs> campaigner in the room and I'm angelic. But, you know, I, I do think that beyond, if we do get a yes, beyond that, there there will be heightened emotion on the other side as well. There'll be heightened emotion on both sides. And, you know, I... I do feel like even some of the people who are who are like you said earlier, Kira, like about soft nose, a little bit of relief for them. They kind of be like, oh, okay, well, now, you know, now I'm going to have to l- learn to live with this new reality. Um, but then to touch on what Ellen said earlier, it's going to step up a gear to the point of lobbying you when you are on the jacks. Like as a politician, they're going to be coming for you. They're going to be coming for you via your dentist via whatever person they can get to you in your life you know they will and they and they can and and and, and that's what it's going to be like and we're looking towards uh if it passes i'd say at least 9 to 12 months of 
of of of torturous labor of delivering the, the the legislation, let alone the bloody referendum. Yeah, and that's if it's a yes. And I know it's an unsavory thing to say, but the problem is, <clears throat> I mean, personally, I think if it's a no vote, having seen what happened with the strike for repeal on International Women's Day there will be a huge amount of protests. Like this is the first time that the pro-choice campaign in Ireland has been as mobilised and organised as it is. And the problem with that is a referendum is a democratic process. And when you have most of the major political groups advocating in favour of repeal, there is a problem that if there are a huge amount of protests, is the, I don't want to use the word establishment, but are people saying that it was the wrong result? And are we saying that like, you know, this is, I know it's an unsavory thing to say, but it's a valid argument that the other side can put across. If there is a no vote, there there are not going to be people that will take it. Like the abortion rights campaign, people like Alva Smith, who've been doing this for three decades, they're not going to be like, oh, well, that's grand, so we'll just move on. <laughs> like there's three women a day, there's nine women traveling, there's going to be another UN case, there's going to be another issue with a woman who ruptures using the pills and this issue will not go away. And the other side can validly say if there is protest and continued agitation, you're just not happy because you didn't get the right result. And are we going to keep doing this until you get the right result? And you can make an argument as strong as you want for repeal and a lot of people will and a lot of people have. But at the end of the day, we work on a system, unfortunately, in Ireland where human rights are the subject of a popular vote, which is something that they were never supposed to be. That's the whole point of the UN. But that's the situation that we're in. Um, And if it is a yes vote, I think we need to accept that this has been a very difficult month for people who are pro-life, who don't like to believe that there is abortion in Ireland, who like to choose to believe that because of the Eighth Amendment, there's a seal over the country that reflects their profound beliefs. And some of them have even had to come to terms over the last few weeks that women are having abortions through pills that they get from like their local postman and stuff. So to have the country vote... Uh, to reject something that is so core to these single issue voters is also very difficult for them. But if it's a yes, they will be seen as this marginalised minority again and people that we won't expect to hear from again. And arguments for them from them for a second referendum won't be entertained. Well, I would argue that it's slightly more, uh, it's slightly harder for, it would be slightly harder for the yes side to stomach a no than the other way around because it actually affects the women that are out there campaigning. It affects our bodies. It affects us on the most deeply personal level. So, yeah, you might have a conviction that life begins at a conception and abortion is wrong on a conceptual level. But, you know, for women who've actually been through the ringer and had to get on a plane bleeding, that is a very different ballgame altogether, like in terms of having to accept a no vote. So I, I, I agree with you that it will be hard for either side to accept, but I think it will be much harder for the yes side. There's one thing that, like, I remember back when, I mean, I first, I suppose, encountered this issue in 2010 when I travelled with a friend of mine who came to me in a, in a distressing situation. And I didn't really think about it too much, but I always kind of knew I was pro-choice. Then 2012 happened and Savita died and I was in college at the time and I just couldn't believe that they'd let someone die. I just couldn't believe that it had happened. And on and on and on it has gone and 2013 and the Protection Life During Pregnancy Act and then that's when I knew we had to act and that's when I tried to support Kate Run and then we, you know, got her elected and all, all that has happened since. But I think I suppose fundamentally if if people if people do vote no then and I, I remember thinking this back in 2010 
every day there's 10 more people voting yes. I know that's I know you I, I know you shouldn't assume that the nine or ten women who are travelling today and will travel in the morning would vote yes. You would hope that they would vote yes, but you actually can't assume that they would. Mm-hmm. Because some of them will have travelled and have had abortions, but will say, Ah no. My situation I was, was different. different. Yeah. I was different. I don't want or from a protectorate point of view, say, oh, I wouldn't want anyone else to go through that, you know. In Ireland, you know, I'm, you know, I know it's it's a very messed up way. Of no, 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 it, but, but you're you're right. Yeah, like I mean, ten ten women a day you would assume who are travelling will be voting a yes, and I think back to when I when I travelled with my friend in 2010, you know, every day since then there's been ten women who were added. I would imagine in my head to the yes to the yes campaign, but who who's to say? You know, who's to say that that each of the women who's travelled. It's going to vote yes this Friday. Well, we're going to find out because, as you said, it is the referendum on Friday. People are going to have to get out there and actually vote. And to a certain extent, we're releasing this special episode because we really want to call everyone that listens to this podcast who is registered to vote in Ireland and will be around to vote. And please um, look at what's out there, look at the information that's there and, and understand that this is so important that we have to get out there and actually vote to change the constitution, to remove the Eighth Amendment and allow the government to bring in legislation that actually makes sense and will make women's lives better. And that's a simple fact. And um, you, you've all talked about the, I think the particular circumstances that people have, have gone through and we were lucky enough to receive some testimonials. And Richie, you've actually cut together something that um, we're going to close out, close out on in the episode yeah. just so people know like an actual personal story. Yeah, the artist campaign to repeal the eight um, did a video testimony called Witness a while back. It was a it was a series of um, uh, uh, t- testimonies read, uh, read out by famous act- actresses from from Ireland, and there was one in particular that we really liked. So we we put a little piece together, and we're going to close out the episode with that, just because it's it's a very hard hitting, harrowing story, but it's also something that's very important and and very apt to this discussion we've been having. And Kira, you touched on it earlier about those those brave people who shared those those stories who didn't have to but they did for the betterment of 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 this whole campaign from our from our perspective so we'd like to close out with Lorraine's story and just before we do we're going to say thanks to Teresa Ellen and Kira thank you so much for taking the thank time thank you so much guys this is wonderful Teresa's whacking the newspaper at Lorraine's story Lorraine's story is in the newspaper. It's in the newspaper. Okay. <laughs> so if you don't want to actually go to the trouble of using your eyeballs to uh, read the story, um, we will now play the audio version, well edited and, uh, and audio-fied by Richie. And thanks for listening. <laughs> thanks, guys. I was 35 when I was widowed. My husband died in an accident. I had four children from 14 to four years of age. It was a terrible time and I never thought I'd get through it. The older kids took it very hard. My family were a great support, taking it in turns to stay over for the first few months endlessly helping with the kids. The following year was a big wedding anniversary for my parents and we all got together to plan a celebration. I'd hardly been out socially since David's death, but I was looking forward to the party. It was at a hotel with everything laid on. And by the end of the night, I'd had a few drinks all right, but I wasn't drunk, just a bit fuzzy, merry. I took a lift home with a family friend, someone I'd known since I was 19 or 20 years old. 
He dropped the others in the car off first, insisted on seeing me to the door, and then pushed his way in behind me. He knew the kids weren't there. I told him they were at their cousins. The horror of that night, I can't tell you. The feelings after he'd gone. Shame, disgust, rage, and worst of all, total helplessness. God forgive me. It was worse than David's death. It didn't happen to me. It was done to me. And I knew immediately I couldn't do anything about it. I couldn't put the kids of the family through a public court case. Everyone always knows who you are by the end. I couldn't do it. When I realised I was pregnant, I felt total despair. I wondered what I've done to deserve it all. My whole sense of who I was seemed to fall apart. I finally told a friend the whole story. And it was her support and organising the abortion that kept me together over the next few weeks. I can't tell you how awful the pregnancy felt for me to be pregnant from that night. I wanted an abortion as soon as possible, but it took huge organisation with family and kids and endless lies because no one knew. And I hated that. I couldn't have got through it without my friend. She also booked me in with the support agency here before we travelled, and that was very helpful. I realised there that I was going to need help with the rape and that there was help available. I felt enormous relief after the abortion and even felt positive enough to think about how I could pick up the pieces and move on. But the next few weeks were hell, all that pretending that we'd had a lovely shopping weekend away or the reason why I couldn't go to the function I knew he would be at. It all left me feeling I'd made some awful mess that I was piling lie on lie to cover. All somehow my fault. It's taken me a long time and professional help to accept it wasn't my fault and to realise I'd lose and the kids would lose if I didn't find a way to move on from this. For me, the abortion will always be a positive factor during a nightmare time. At least I could make that choice. Any other outcome for me was so unbearable it was unthinkable. Thank you.